Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I am honored to have Damon West with me. Damon has a phenomenal story from Division I quarterback to prison to best-selling author and uh, speaker, and I'm just so honored that he's going to be on here sharing his story. And I think one of the biggest takeaways that you'll um, have from our conversation is the fact that it takes action to get to where you want to go. So, Damon, thanks so much for uh, being on today. Man, thanks a lot for having me, Phil. It's great to be here, man. I've been looking forward to this for a while. You bet. So to kick off your story, as a, as a young man, um, you get introduced to some different, you know, having a beer and having a cigarette and things like that as a, at a very young age. And you said, you know, it didn't necessarily shape me, but it opened up my eyes to adult choices as a young person. So talk a little bit about that from a youth standpoint. Yeah, you know, when I was, I tell people this all the time. When I was nine, I was molested by a babysitter, a female babysitter. Yeah. And, but I'm, I'm careful not to make this sound like, hey, this was that moment in my life when things just like, oh, my God, my life fell apart. Because there's, there's people out there that are molested or sexually assaulted that this really does. It's a huge disruptor in their lives. And yeah. I, I don't want to minimize their stories by saying that, that mine was like that because mine wasn't like that. And what happened to me is I was introduced to adult behaviors at a very young age, nine years old. And it was almost like a big door that the door that you can't get on the other side of because you have to be an adult to go in that door. I was allowed access into that room at nine years old. And on the other side of that door, there were all these little doors that you could just fling open because there's no locks on those doors because adults can just make choices all the time and there's nobody there to stop you. So there I am at nine with all these doors open up to me. And whenever I was 10, I opened that first door, which was drinking. I had my first uh, my first beer. I was sneaking in a fridge, getting my dad's beer. But I liked the way it felt. I liked the yeah. effects of the chemicals on my body, the chemical of alcohol on my body. But I didn't stop there because there's another door. There's smoking cigarettes. There's smoking dope. And by the time I was 12, I was smoking pot. I had a lot of character issues. And I'd skip school. And, and I'd get in trouble. But I could throw a football, Phil. Yeah. And because I could throw a football, this is Texas. And Texas high school football it's a, it's like a religion in this state, you know? So, but I, I got a lot of breaks cut to me in life. I got a lot of passes in life because I could throw a pass. And I think that my behavior started being shaped at a very young age and substance abuse was something that was introduced to my life. And I had no clue at the time that I was an, an addict in the early stages of my disease of addiction, but it ended up catching up with me. Yeah. Now, as you're progressing, you mentioned, hey, you, you become a, a phenomenal football player and all throughout high school have, have great success. And that opens the door to a collegiate uh, opportunity. And you go to North Texas and you're there and things are going seemingly well. And then all of a sudden we have a game against A&M. So talk a little bit about the time in college and then the injury that comes. Yeah. And, and first of all, thank you for doing the research, man, because it's, it's clear that you, you, you know what you're talking about. So it's always nice to come on to a podcast or be interviewed by someone that actually knows your story. And so what you're talking about is September 21st, 1996, we were playing against Texas A&M, beautiful Saturday in College Station, Texas. I'm 20 years old. I've become the starting quarterback of my team. And look, my identity is wrapped up in being a football player. It's what I've put all the cards, all, all the chips have been moved to the center of the table. I am a football player. That's what I identify with. Yeah. But on that day, the third play of the game, as I'm driving my team down the field against A&M, I go down with a career ending injury. <laughs> and when I get up that day and I dust myself off, I'm at this fork in the road in life where football is gone and my identity is gone with it. Yeah. And I've got some choices to make at this fork in the road. But 
My choices are not guided by the right thing. My choices are guided by the emotion of feeling like my identity is gone and hurt and anger and resentment. And so I did what so many addicts do when they have resentment and anger. I put in, but I'm not just putting in alcohol and smoking some pot now. I'm doing the hardcore drugs because I really got to change the way I feel. The chemicals have to be stronger and it's cocaine, it's ecstasy, it's pills. Um, so I got into hardcore drugs after that happened in 1996. And, and that was really a fork in the road in my life. Yeah. Now, I want to dig into that because I think so many people, we wrap our identity into things that we don't control, right? So for you, it might have been football, but I mean, it could be your job. It could be career success. It could be being a parent, right? I mean, whatever it is, what would be a word of encouragement you'd have for someone that finds themselves you know, their identity in something that they're doing or they've been able to accomplish opposed to in who they are, or who they're able to impact. My advice would be stop, take a step back and reassess the situation because your identity cannot come from something external. Something mm -hmm. that can be taken away from you cannot be your identity because your identity has to come from within. It's it's like in recovery, uh, and we'll get more into this later. I, I'm, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic, and I go to AA meetings because that's my program recovery is AA. And we teach people in AA in the rooms of recovery that your identity has to come from within because if, you know, your higher, let's say your higher power in the program recovery, we all talk about a higher power, something to yeah. keep you sober. It's got to be something that's greater than you. Your identity is not something external. It's 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 something that comes from like how you are. What what is it that that you what makes you at your core? Like today, I can tell you, my identity is being a servant leader. In fact, on my tombstone, I wanted to read servant leader. That would be enough yeah. for me because that's my identity. I look for ways to serve every single day because that makes me happy. That brings me joy in this life. When you put your joy into something that can be taken away, what are you going to do then? Yeah, that's so good. So as football ends and school ends for you, uh, you have two great jobs. You go out to D.C. for a little bit and you're, you're working there and then you end up coming back to Texas and getting a job with a financial firm. And there's a important day that happens. You're feeling a little sluggish and a, a colleague comes up to you and says, I got a solution. Yeah, you know, I after high I mean, after college, I graduated college, I went to work in the United States Congress. Uh, I worked uh, for a guy running for president of the United States. I'm in the Washington, D.C. political scene. Oh, yeah. four, I moved back to Texas and I get a job as a uh, working as training to be a stockbroker for UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And it was in 04 at that job that I was passed out of sleep at work one day. This other broker comes up and he sees me sleeping and he's, you know, he's visibly shaking and he wakes me up. He's like, Damon, wake up. You cannot sleep on this job. The markets are open. You're messing with people's money. He said, they'll fire you if they catch you sleeping. So he said, come on down to the parking garage. I got something that's going to pick you up. So I go down to the parking garage with this guy that day, Phil. And, and when we get into his car, I, I really think we're going to do some cocaine because I'm into cocaine in 2004. Yeah. But when we get into his car, he hands me this glass pipe with these crystal rocks in it. And man, I've never seen a glass pipe before. I'm like, man, what is that? And he's like, Damon, it's crystal meth. He said, you're going to love this stuff. Phil, truer words have never been spoken because I fell in love with crystal meth that day. That drug is the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug ever created by man. The stuff is made in a lab. It's made to get you hooked. I smoked it one time and I was instantly hooked just like that. And I could not give everything away fast enough for that drug. My job, my home, my car, my savings account, my yeah. family, my tethering to God. Within 18 months from the first hit of that pipe, I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. So there I was homeless 
lost everything in life, given everything away, except this addiction was grown stronger. That's the only thing I have left. So as you're progressing through that, I mean, and we're going to talk a lot about, you know, your relationship with your parents, but over that 18 month time frame, how did the different relationships you have change over that time? And how did people, you know, maybe reach out to you, but just because you, you were so focused on the addiction, not be able to have, you know, cultivating relationships that way? Yeah, you know, my parents reached out to me a lot. They tried, um, they could see that something was wrong, but yeah. outside of, you know, I lived in Dallas, they lived in Port Arthur, which is six hours away from each other. Yeah. Outside of just kidnapping me, which is I'm a grown man, they couldn't make me come home. And I wasn't ready to leave Dallas because my drug dealers were in Dallas. My meth dealers were in Dallas. There's no way I was going anywhere else. And by this point, I've got a life of crime and a life of crime, you know, to fund my addiction. And look, I, I get into this underworld that, yeah. you know, you separate yourself the relationships I had with people like my family, people that followed the law, people that did good, I got further and further away from them. Mm. You know, at, at one point when I, I would just lie to my parents about what I'm doing, where I was, then I just stopped taking their calls altogether. I remember there was a day when I was going through this in, in probably 2006, 2007, uh, I'm going through my phone, which is just uh, another one of these these phones that I've got. Yeah. My phone number changes all the time, but I've got the same phone. And I'm looking through my phone and I'm looking at the phone numbers in my phone book. Your phone book will tell you a lot about who you are. Yeah. And at one time, my phone had a list of senators, congressmen, chiefs of staff, you know, people that worked in the White House, bankers, doctors, lawyers, pillars of society. But now my phone just had the numbers of drug dealers, you know, wow. pushers and thieves and other criminals in the underworld. And I remember thinking to myself, damn, damn it, what happened to you? But it's those little moments like that that were just like a, a moment of lucidity where I was yeah. lucid enough to understand something's changed, but I wasn't prepared to do anything with it. And all mm -hmm. the interventions that people wanted to have in my family, they weren't going to connect because I wasn't going to allow it to. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we make our own choices. We make our own decisions. No one can make us change. We are responsible yeah. for that change. That is so good. That is so good. Now, as you mentioned, you get into a life of crime. And once again, we have to fund the addiction. And so we're kind of breaking in and taking things. And so talk about how that kind of came to be. But then also the, the day where you're sitting in the, uh, the apartment with your drug dealer and we, we hear the window break in. Yeah. So, I mean, these, these, so I start committing crimes uh, to fund my addiction. You know, it's like, it starts off as petty crimes. I'm breaking into cars. I'm breaking into storage units. And eventually I start breaking into people's houses. And this is the crime of burglary. And, and I tell people all the time, I didn't just break into houses and steal people's property when I broke into their homes. I stole their sense of security. I, hell, I don't even know if my victims will ever regain that. They'll live with that for the rest of their lives. But after three years of committing property crimes against the people of Dallas, Texas, the Dallas SWAT team on July 30th, 2008, put an end to the uptown burglaries. That's what they called the crime spree I was on because the uptown neighborhood of Dallas, where I once lived when I was a stockbroker, was where I was breaking into people's houses. And on July 30th, 2008, a day I'll never forget, I'm sitting there on the couch. I'm smoking meth with my meth dealer, this guy named Tex. I'm passing the pipe back and forth. And, and as I'm doing it, I'm telling Tex that, you know, Tex, you don't want to be here. The end is near. The cops are closing in. 10 days before this, this guy that I was doing all these burglaries with in Dallas, this guy named Dustin, 
had been picked up by the Dallas Police Department and stolen a car. So they, they've got my partner in crime and custody. I know it's just a matter of time before they get to me. And just as I pass that pipe back to text, the window on my right blows out of shatters. And then tumbling across that living room floor, it's this little canister going end over end. And it's smoking on one side. Yeah. And man, like Phil, I've seen this movie before. I know what that canister is about to do. And I tried to get out of that living room as fast as I could. Too late. Boom! The flashbang grenade goes off right in my face. Bright white light, loud noise. Blows me back on the couch. And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, there was a cop. Mm -hmm. He's standing over me in full SWAT right gear. He's got his boot on my chest. The barrel of an assault rifle is digging in my eye socket. His fingers over the trigger. And he is screaming mm -hmm. at the top of his lungs, don't move, don't move. Man, I looked at this cop and I screamed back at him. I was like, man, don't worry, don't worry, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you've got a gun in my eye, man. These cops are flooding into my apartment and one of them screams out out loud, we got him. We got the Uptown Burglar. Mm -hmm. That's what they called me, the, the Uptown Burglar, a name I'll never escape the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, because about a dozen other meth addicts and myself, young and old, male and female, black and white, and, and everything in between, we indiscriminately and without reservation broke into the homes of dozens of people in the uptown neighborhood of Dallas to feed our insatiable meth habits. July 30, 2008, though, Phil, day I'll never forget. That was the day that that SWAT team didn't just arrest me. They rescued me that day. Mm. Yeah. So uh, as you've now been arrested, right, we, we have the court hearing. Court hearing takes six days and uh, 10 minutes of deliberation. But after the deliberation, uh, you have a conversation with your parents and, and your mom has a very, uh, we'll say direct, but if you really wanted to call it loving, you would, uh, conversation with you. So talk a little bit about you know, that phase. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, when I came back into the courtroom after the, the jury goes for 10 minutes to deliberate, you know, as a defendant, <laughs> that's not a good sign. It means there's right. really not a lot they had to think about. And they came back with a 65-year sentence. So they sentenced me to life in prison because 65 in Texas is life. And as soon as the trial was over, the, the sheriff and the bailiff, they escorted me out of there. They put me in this little side room. It's got a bulletproof glass. And my mom and my dad are brought in on the other side of that glass. They're going to give my parents one last visit with me before I go to prison. And so my mom does all the talking. And she's telling me, she's like, you know, baby, debts in life demand to be paid. And you just got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas. She said, but well, you did the things they said you did at that trial. So you're going to have to go pay that debt to society. You owe Texas that debt, but you owe your father and I a debt too. She said, we gave you all the opportunity, love and support to be anything you wanted to be in life. And that's how you just repaid us, what we saw in that courtroom. She said, so the debt you're going to pay to your father and I is that when you go to prison, you will not get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type of gangs, because you're scared because you're the minority in there. She said, yeah. it's not going to work. You were, you were never raised to be a racist, and you're not going to start now. And she said, you will not get any tattoos while you're inside that prison. She said, no gangs, no tattoos. She said, you come back as the man we raised, or don't come back at all. Mm. And Phil, I'm floored. I'm just like, whoa. She <laughs> said, do you understand this debt you're going to pay? I was like, yeah, mom, I got it. I understand it. But I mean, what do I know, Phil? I've never been to prison before. I mean, I'm a white middle-class guy in America. But she said, do you understand this debt you're going to pay? I was like, yeah, I got it, mom. Yeah. So there I am in Dallas County Jail. I'm waiting for the prison bus to come pick me up. I've got about two months before the bus comes to get me. And I'm asking every guy that's in the, in the Dallas County Jail that's been to prison before, how am I going to survive? You know, what am I going to do? And every, every guy I talked to, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they told me the same thing. 
You have to get into a gang. You won't survive without a gang. The gang is going to be your family. The gang is going to love you. You know, but there was this one guy in Dallas County Jail that was different than everybody else, this older black man named Mr. Jackson. Yeah. He was the one that shared with me some of the most important information. I bet you know what, what he shared with me, don't you? I do. And it's it's uh, so important to me because probably about four years ago, uh, you, you had made a post with these three items. And I read it and I was like, this is amazing. And so he shares with you two things. One is about a carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. But the second is that you need to smile. So talk a little bit about that great information he gave you. So, yeah, he was telling me to anticipate prison being the hottest pot of boiling water there is. And he said, so in this pot of boiling water we call prison, I'm going to put three things in there, a carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. So here's where I first heard the allegory of the coffee bean, the summer of 2009 in Dallas County Jail. So he's like, you know, he said, first things first, he said, if I put a carrot in that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, what happens to the carrot? And I was like, man, the carrot's going to turn soft. And he said, that's right. He said, carrots go into the water hard, but the water, the prison, turns the hard carrot soft and mushy and weak. And, you know, he's telling me the carrot gets beat, gets robbed, may get raped, may get yeah. killed. You don't want to be the carrot inside the prison. Then he said, what about the egg? What happened to the egg in the pot of boiling water we call prison? Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, the egg is going to turn hard, man, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, that's right. He said, the egg has a shell that protects it physically, but inside that shell, that soft liquid core, the egg's heart becomes hardened. And he said, if your heart becomes hardened, now you're incapable of giving or receiving love. And he said, if you're incapable of giving or receiving love, you become institutionalized and you won't come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell will have swastikas tattooed all over it. Yeah. And so he asked me the big question. Tell me what happens to the coffee bean. What about the coffee bean in the pot of warm water we call prison? And I didn't have an answer for Mr. Jack. I didn't know what happened to a coffee bean and a pot of boiling water. And that's when Mr. Jackson, a man that looked nothing like me, didn't come from the same America that I came from, didn't believe the same things I believed in life fundamentally or spiritually. This is a black Muslim man from the streets of Dallas, Texas, man. I'm a white Catholic guy from this little bitty town called Port Arthur, but this man's so different than me, shared with me one of the most important and transformational messages I've ever received in my life. Yeah. And the moral to that is this, man, we, we can't shut ourselves off to people because of their differences, because the minute you shut yourself off to someone because of their different race, different gender, ethnicity, religion, you know, different sexual orientation. The minute we close ourselves off to these other people, we miss some of the most important lessons and some of the best friendships yeah. in this life. Because Mr. Jackson told me that day, he said, if I put a coffee bean in the same pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, now you got to change the name of the water to coffee. Because yeah. he said the coffee bean, the smallest of the three things, he said small like you, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot because the power was inside the coffee bean. He said, just like the power is inside of you. Yeah. Everybody in life, we all put out energy, negative or positive energy. And he said, whatever kind of energy you put out, you attract back the law of attraction. And that's what he's telling me, man. If you choose to walk around prison with a mean look on your face, you want to look hard for those other guys, your negative energy is going to attract the most violent, dangerous, and negative men because negative energy attracts other negative energy. He said, but if you walk around that prison with a smile on your face and you let those guys know they're not getting to you, no matter what they do, they cannot break you. Yeah. He said, you'll change prison from the inside out. And he said, the best part about it is the other coffee beans in prison, the other positive inmates, they'll find you because of your positive energy. You know, he's telling me 
that you either, when you walk into a room, you either infect the room with your negative energy or you affect the room with yeah. your positive energy. Infect versus affect. We want to have a positive effect everywhere you go. And that's when he told me to smile. Smile everywhere you go. Because when you smile, people see you smile and they smile back. Now you've changed the energy everywhere you go. But he reminded me too, yeah. Phil. He said, man, he said, just remember that everything else is changed by the water. The carrots are changed by water. Those are days that you're sad. You're beat down by life. And, and that's going to happen. You're going to be the carrot sometime. You know, yeah. it's okay to be the carrot, but you just can't get stuck there. Yeah. And he said, the eggs, the eggs go into the water. That soft liquid inside becomes hard. He said, the eggs are changed by the water too. Those are going to be days that you're mad and mean and angry. and Everybody irritates you. And guess what? You're going to have those egg days. That's a natural human emotion. Just like being sad is, angry, anger is, it's okay to get angry sometimes. That's going to happen. But you cannot get stuck there. You can't let the anger control you. Yeah. Because we all have the third option, Phil. The third option to be like that coffee bean. Because the coffee bean is the only thing that changes the pot of boiling water to a pot of coffee. It's the change agent. Yes. Now, as I think about that, and you know, we were cheating because we're years in advance today talking about it, but I, I rewind and I try and put myself in your shoes. And that is, I'm hearing this really good message, but Mr. Jackson, the reality is, is I've got 65 years in here, man. Like that's a, that's a lot. We're also going through, you know, probably uh, getting out of being in a, addict to something that I'm not having access to anymore. Um, there's probably a sense of like, man, I, I kind of let my family down and man, I can't believe I have to go to jail. How are you internalizing and breaking all of that down all while taking this positive message and thinking, all right, how can I apply it when I get to prison? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on at the time. The yeah. last four words Jackson ever said to me were be a coffee bean. You know, that's it. Be a coffee bean. Uh, and so I hold on to this, but it, it's not like a magic pill. You know, it's yeah. not like one of those things that, that he said it. And the, you know, I said right there in the moment, well, this is going to change my life. <laughs> it was important because yeah. I could grasp that. And it, it's the same thing I see in the free world out here now when I go around speaking about it. Anybody from five to 95 can understand yeah. the allegory of the carrot, the egg, and the coffee bean. Yeah. But when I heard it at the time, I thought, be a coffee bean. Okay, that's going to be a mantra. I can live with, I can be a coffee bean, but just saying being a coffee bean and applying it in the biggest pot of boiling water, look, man, I'm going to a maximum security level right. five penitentiary, the highest security level there is, Phil. Right. This is the end of the earth, man. This is the edge of the world that I'm going to. And the beautiful thing about this story, if you can use beautiful as a word to describe it, is that we get to see if the coffee bean will really work in the biggest pot of boiling water there is, because I'm telling you something. I talk to people all the time. People tell me their biggest fear is to go to prison. That's it. That's yeah. the biggest, as big as it gets. Think about what your biggest fear would be walking into a maximum security prison. And there's a reason why, because prison is dangerous. It's a scary place. Yeah. And I had to get into that prison and try to apply this coffee bean mentality, this coffee bean message. And I'm going to tell you something. It didn't happen right away. In fact, yeah. it took months to take yeah. root. And the coffee bean by itself, wasn't ever going to be enough for me to make the change that you saw that was going to happen to me. This yeah. had to be a spiritual awakening that I had to go along with that because human beings aren't capable of making this kind of change that you've seen in my life on their own. That is a spiritual thing that happens. Yes. 
So good. So at this point, we do. We head to prison, and so we could spend an entire hour just talking on, I mean, week by week of that interaction. But you mentioned it, and you say, you know, one of the biggest things of prison is that it's a race-driven um, world there, right? And so the first couple of weeks, you had to fend off the white groups, and then the next few weeks, you had to fend off the black groups. But eventually, you gained we'll say the respect of the people inside. And that allowed you to maybe not fear on a day-to-day <laughs> fight standpoint, but you have a comment that you make about, you don't have to win fights, but you have to fight them. So talk a little bit about that period of time for you and, and the lessons learned. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the hardest trial I've ever been through. You know, it's a baptism by fire. And the, uh, the idea was that if I could survive this, if I could overcome the adversity of that, the white gangs and the black gangs i had to do that to earn the right the right to walk alone you know mm -hmm. and and mr jackson told me he said the strongest man in prison always walks alone doesn't join a gang wow. and that's when he shared with me that simple but powerful truth that you don't have to win all your fights but you do have to fight all your fights one yeah. of the biggest lessons in life because that tells you that some days you're going to win and some days you're going to lose and and losing is a part of life but it's getting back up and facing your battles and that's the that's the thing I took with me. These fights I got into in prison, I didn't win. I lost most of my fights. I probably got in three dozen fights while I was there. And I lost 75% of those fights, but I won because I kept showing up. Because yeah. I kept saying, you will not keep me down. No matter what you come at me with, I'm going to get back up. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, the white gangs finally said, hey, we're done. And they sent the black gangs in. And, and after fighting with the black, almost two months is what it finally took for me to earn the right to walk alone. But once I earned that right to walk alone, the threat to my physical safety was gone. I, I didn't have to worry anymore about my physical safety, but I had a bigger problem in my hands after two months in prison. I was becoming the egg. I didn't mm -hmm. want to be the egg, Phil, but I didn't yeah. know how to be a coffee bean. You know, this, this story, this carrot, this egg and the coffee bean, I was almost, I, was, I wasn't almost, I was, I was, I was angry at Jackson when I was yeah. in prison because I'm like, man, think to myself, you tell me this fairy tale about this carrot, this egg and the coffee bean but you don't tell me how to be a coffee bean. <laughs> right. That's the thing about it is, is we can go to people for sources of inspiration, but each of us has to figure out how to become that coffee bean in our own lives. But there were some simple rules, not simple, but some, some rules that could guide me to being a coffee bean. And that was what the basis of my life was in there that I got to take out here in the free world and share with everybody else. Yes. Now, as you're, in prison, uh, a gentleman in there, a, a cellmate of yours, makes a comment that this is the best opportunity for you to work on yourself. And what a mindset shift, right? I, I can't imagine there's too many people <laughs> that view uh, prison that way. But talk about, you know, that conversation, really how that starts to allow you to change and, you know, soften the egg and turn into the coffee bean. Yeah, you know, he, he talked to me about he said because I, I, I told him the story at the coffee bean. i'm like his name was carlos a yeah. little my little cellmate he was a little bank robber from san antonio if you look at my social media pages it recently had a, a visit with carlos you can see a picture cool. of carlos and i and um you know I, i'm at, i'm telling the story of the coffee bean he gets it immediately because carlos is one of these coffee bean type guys yeah. but he said you're not a coffee bean and you're never going to be a coffee bean and i got angry with carlos i'm like what do you mean i can't be a coffee bean he said, because your thinking is off the way you think. He said, your problem is, as you look at prison like it's a punishment, when you should be looking at prison like it is an opportunity. Wow. 
Wow. And I mean, Phil, it's exactly it. I'm like, I can't wrap my brain around this concept. I am in a maximum security level five penitentiary, the highest security level there is. I just got done fighting for two months for my right to even exist. I don't know if I'm going to survive. I don't know if I'm ever going home. And this little bank robber who's also serving life is sitting there telling me this is the best opportunity I'm going to get in life. This is wonderful. I can't wrap my brain around it. I'm like, Carlos, explain this to me more. Yeah. And he told me, he said, this is your opportunity, Wes. He said, your opportunity to work on yourself 24 hours a day, seven days a week, becoming the best version of yourself possible. And it lights out that night. He peeks his head down from the top bunk. He says, Psst. he said, West, what are you prepared to do tomorrow with your opportunity? The dude refused to call prison a punishment. Yeah. So the next day I woke up, my feet hit the cold concrete floor of the prison cell. And I, I look up at the ceiling and I'm like, all right, God, thanks for this opportunity. And I didn't believe it at first, Bill, but I did what is so necessary in life to change the situation I was in. I took one small step of action into a new life. And that's what we were talking about a while ago. That's about taking action because that's what we all have to do. You want to change your life, the situation you're in, the hopes, these goals, these dreams that you have in life, you have to take action. Mm -hmm. And there's no one else that can take it for you. No one's coming to save you. No one's coming to wake you up in the morning. You have to take the action in your own life. And when you do that, when you get up consistently every day and take little small steps of action, that's when you begin to grow. Because growth takes place outside your comfort zone. And when we are growing, that's when we're going to meet, we're going to meet the yeah. best version of ourselves. Like Ed Milet says, my friend Ed says, you know, on the other side of adversity is the best version of you. Mm-hmm. But you have to go meet that person. You have to go do the work. You have to put in the work. And people, I talk to people all the time. We live in this artificial world right now of instant gratification. We want yeah. everything now, now. Everybody wants it now. I mean, that's just yeah. the way the world we live in. But the truth is, it doesn't happen like that because results take time to measure. You yeah. know, every day I got up in that prison, days became weeks, weeks became months, and months became years, and I had to work on myself. And the only path forward for me was hard work, dedication, commitment, patience, consistency, and a little bit of luck along the way. But I finally figured out how to be a coffee meeting. Took a long yes. time, though. Yes. Now, due to sake of time, we're, we're going to go through a couple of things. So you, you meet with an officer, you get out on parole after seven and a half years in prison, but they say, hey, you ever have to come back, you're here for life. <laughs> They're not going to be a second opportunity. You get Whataburger, you get the opportunity to uh, get a job, and then a friend invites you one day and says, hey, there's this uh, coaching award ceremony, you should drive down to Houston and come to that. So talk about the eight coaches in that night. Yeah, this friend of mine named Mike Orta. Mike Orta was, uh, you know, he's really one of the first people that ever heard my story and just got involved. He was a videographer and he's he's working as a cameraman at, at KHOU. Yeah. And he knows I've got this dream of sharing my story with college football programs, but I don't know any college football coaches. I, I hadn't played college football in 20 years, you know? Yeah. So he says, it was January 12th of 2017, he said, tonight in Houston, Texas, is the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award. They're going to name the best college football coach in America. He said, the eight best coaches in the country are going to be in this room. I've got an extra press pass. Do you want to go? So I'm like, yes, you better want to go. So I, I drive the 90 miles from Beaumont to Houston after work. I get to the Toyota Center, and I hit the ground running. And all the best coaches are there tonight, Phil. USC, Wisconsin, Penn State, P.J. Fleck, they're all there. And I get to go meet every one of these coaches and shake their hand. And every single coach I meet that night slams a door in my face. They tell me no. And they're not rude about it, but it's just you could tell someone's body language. And my <laughs> elevator pitch was terrible. 
But seven of the eight coaches in that room that night have told me no within the first hour. One hour, that's seven, that's a no every eight minutes. I'm dejected. I'm in the corner of the Toyota Center, licking my wounds, feeling sorry for myself. And the voice in my head says, Damon, go home. Quit. It's over. You know, all these other coaches told you no. The last coach is going to tell you no, too. And he's the hardest guy to get to in the room because his team had just beat Alabama two nights before for the national championship. Yeah. But you know what I quit doing a long time ago, Phil? I quit listening to myself. I don't listen to myself. I talk to myself. I love I it. I hold myself in the corner. You're not going anywhere. You're st- that guy's going to tell you no to your face. And then when he tells you no, then you can go home. Mm-hmm. So I stalked Dabo Sweeney around that room that <laughs> night. And I must look like a crazy person, man. I'm hiding behind fake plants. I'm eavesdropping every conversation he has. And, man, I finally pounce on Dabo, and I give him my pitch. And at the end of my pitch, you know, he's like, hey, man, you got a card on you or something? And his body language is terrible. He can't get away from me fast <laughs> enough. So he takes my card and goes. And I'm like, all right, that's, that's eight no's. I went home and I slept like a baby that night. I'm going to tell you why, Phil, because I left it all on the field. We tell people at a young age, you know, give it all you got. That's what yeah. we learned when we were kids when we play sports. Give it all you got. Give it your best shot. Sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. But it doesn't matter if you lose as long as you gave it everything you had. You have no regrets. Yeah. You don't have to win all your fights, but you have to fight all your fights. Yes. I fought all my fights. I went home that night. Forgot all about that night, to be honest with you. Four months later. I get an email from the director of football operations at Clemson, a guy named Mike Dooley. And Mike Dooley says, hey, Damon, Coach Sweeney met you at a ward show in Houston. He'd love to have you come talk to the team. Do you have August 1st open? And I'm like, dude, I got every first open, man. I got nothing going on in my life this time. So August 1st, 2017, I go speak to the Clemson Tigers, the defending national champions of college football. And when I got done with my presentation that night, Dabo was up in my face. And he's like, man, he said, Damon, that's the most amazing story I've ever heard. I've never seen my players respond like that to a speaker. He said, man, have you been to Alabama yet? I was like, no, man, I've been (laughs) been anywhere. He said, I just called Nick Saban from the back of the room, told him I was watching it. I mean, and the next day I had a voicemail and a a text message from the director of football operations at Alabama. He said, hey, Dabo called. We'll see you at Tuscaloosa in three weeks. You're on. Just like that, the door to college football was kicked open. I mean, and I'm going to every college now. You know, Kirby Smart, I'm going to see Lincoln Riley, Lane Kiffin, Chip Kelly. But the real magic happened about a year later, man. It was August of 2018. I was at my desk at work at that law firm, and a phone call comes in on my cell phone. And the other end of the phone is this guy named John Gordon. John Gordon, the energy bus guy, was on my phone, man. This is the guy (laughs) I follow every morning for inspiration, right? (laughs) Five million books sold. Big motivational speaker, motivational speaker and keynote speaker around America. And I'm like, John, how do you know who I am? He said, Dabo Sweeney. Yeah. He said, I just got done talking to Clemson's football team. And Dabo pulled in the office and tell me about your story. And he said, Damon, he said, the culture at Clemson is probably the best culture of any team or corporation or anything. And their motto now is be a coffee bean. Yeah. They've got little shir- shirts with these little paw prints that say be a coffee bean. He said, and John said this, this is in 2018 before the pandemic. He said, the world needs the coffee bean message, Damon. Let's deliver this message to the world. We'll do it in the form of a book. We'll call it the coffee bean. And uh, my best response that I had for John Gordon that day, Phil, was, John, you're John Gordon. You go write the book yourself. You don't need Damon West. Thankfully, John is just the most amazing man in the world. He said, no. He said, God already told me to call you. We don't. We do this book together. We don't do it at all. But I've, I've got the vision of what the book even looks like in my head. So we did the book, The Coffee Bean, Phil. It came out, I mean, it's, 
July 2nd will be the third year anniversary of the, the book coming out. Yeah. The book launched and it became this instant bestseller, not just in America, but around the world. It's got a global publishing contract to it. The world, every major language in the world, Chinese, Spanish, Arabic, French, Italian, has the story of the coffee bean. Yeah. But it all goes back to that one night in Houston, Texas, man, when I'm standing yes. in the corner of the Toyota Center and I'm thinking about walking out that door before I get that last note. Yep. And if I would have walked out that door, Phil, you and I aren't talking today. The world doesn't have the coffee bean message. And the moral to that story is this. You cannot give up before the miracle happens. You've got to you've got to knock on every door. You've got to make every call. If you work in a sales job, man, make that extra call. Do it. As my buddy Ed says, Ed Milet, put in that one more. you got to make every call. you got to knock on every door. In life, you have to put in the work to find out who you're truly going to be because you never know where that one person is going to be, especially if you're like in the sales job, that's going to turn their whole Rolodex over to you, which is essentially what Davos Whitney did for me. Changed my life forever because I didn't walk out that door and quit that night. Yes. Now, Damon, as you've progressed and you've worked through so many things personally in, in your journey, what has been the catalyst and the constant motivation to keep going and keep doing the more? I think for some people, right, they hit a certain level of success or they get a certain opportunity. It's like, hey, I'm good here. I plateaued and I just stayed. And you've been able to do so many great things and you're continuing to do more things. I have this thing that I call a rookie mindset. And this mm. rookie mindset means that I attack life the same way today that I did the first day when I started this or the first day when I was in prison and I decided to become a coffee bean, right? Yeah. Because in my mind, I'm always competing against me. I look in the mirror every day and that's who I'm competing against. I'm going to compete against that guy every single day. And look, I got a lot of perspective. I tell people all the time, tap into your perspective. My perspective in my life, every day that I wake up, my feet don't hit the cold concrete floor of the prison cell. I'm winning. I'm having a good day and I'm going to make it a great day. My worst day out here is better than my best day in prison, right? Mm. So I've got this tremendous perspective in life, this gratitude for life. That's it. Gratitude, Phil. Gratitude in a servant's heart. I'm looking for ways every day to serve. I say one prayer every morning. I mean, I ask God, I get up and I'm talking to God and I'm going to ask him for two things every day. Two yeah. things. This is a prayer that I learned when I was in prison. Still say it. I don't ask you for anything the rest of the day. This is it, man. God, Put in front of me what you need me to do today for you. And mm. let me recognize that when I see it, because I don't want to miss that. Amen. That's it. That's the only thing I ask for, man. Find ways that you need me to work for you today. And I've learned this, man. And I'm a Christian, so I don't, whatever any, anybody's faith is, yeah. is fine. But in my faith, I believe that if, if I take care of what God needs me to do for him, he's going to take care of my needs too, not my wants. Yep. But my needs, needs mm -hmm. and wants are two different things. Phil, we could go on for six more hours about wants and needs. But my yes. my needs have been met and my needs yes. continue to be met. And, 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 I, and I firmly believe that when we're working, when our actions are in harmony with what your higher power, what God wants you to do, that's when the beautiful stuff happens in your life. Boom. Damon. All I can say is thank you. And, you know, it, it's amazing to see all of the moments that have led to where you're at today and all the amazing things you still have to go. I mean, the, the guy's written three books, right? I mean, we got The Change Agent, 
the coffee bean and the locker room. I mean, all amazing uh, things. You're speaking everywhere. I know you mentioned, hey, flying to London after this to, to speak there. But I think one of the things that sticks out about your story, well, the two things that just continue to come back is one, you've been a leader since day one. Sometimes we use our leadership for not good things. And sometimes we use our leadership for good things, right? And uh, that's just been a constant in your story. But two is you're always willing to take action. And with taking action, doesn't mean you're going to get the instant gratification for it, but you're going to get something. It just, it takes time. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, you've got to, You've got to be willing to believe, you've got to believe in yourself and invest in yourself before anybody else is going to. And, and I heard somebody say one day that uh, the belief is going to come after the work. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to have to put the work in. But when you believe in yourself and you're willing to invest in yourself and people see that, man, people can tell if that's genuine or not. Other people are going to invest in you. And, and like in my life, Phil, uh, six and a half years out of prison, my life is in a place probably four or five people have ever flip this whole situation on the on ear after coming out of prison like I have. But in my mind, I'm still going, man. I'm, I haven't yeah. reached a plateau yet. I haven't reached the top of the mountain. I'm still going uphill every single day. And I keep pushing and pushing and pushing because as I'm doing this, I'm finding more people as I'm going up that I can help that are around me. Every step I go up on the ladder, I'm looking around, there's more people to help. And that's where I focus on. How can I be more useful today instead of useless like I used to be, you know? Mm, it's amazing. Well, Damon, I want to say thanks so much for being on today. Uh, where can people find you from a social media standpoint and make sure to follow your, uh, your pages and your content? Yeah, my Instagram and Twitter, best place to find me, Damon West, at Damon West 7, D-A-M-O-N-W-S-T-7. My website, damonwest.org. If you want to find me for speaking or whatever, that's where you can find me and find out what I'm up to. I love it. Thanks so much, brother. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate your time today, brother.